being a black female founder is nothing short of just difficult. Now, being a black founder of a femtech slash sex tech company is even more excruciating because I get turned down for stuff because I'm a, they say that I'm a sex tech founder because of the coverage area that private packs provides therapy to, which the first product is for the vulva. So for instance, I found out that Silicon Valley Bank would not give me a bank account because they thought I was investing money. Hi, I'm Suzanne Sinatra, and I'm a model minority. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. Today, we're talking to Suzanne Sinatra, founder of Private Packs, a woman's sexual health product. Suzanne's uncovered an unmet need and has taken a really brave step and a lot of risk to make a product that doesn't exist but needs to exist. Suzanne is one of the most real and direct entrepreneurs I've met. And you'll understand when you listen to it, she's not an ad tech startup making, you know, some DTC shampoo with essential oils. <laughs> um, and it's not just the nature of her product. She's really passionate. She really cares, but she's really open and forthright. And uh, just a quick warning, the conversation um, that you're about to listen to does get a little intense with conversations on some pretty unfortunate parts of Suzanne's life. So I just ask if uh, you might be uh, triggered or sensitive to hearing things um, about some very uncomfortable topics, please just take a warning before you listen to this podcast. So. I first met Suzanne at General Assembly. She was a student in my class and she literally flew into the classroom. I mean, with a ball of energy, stood in the front of the classroom and introduced herself. She was like, I'm Suzanne Sinatra. And first I was like, that's an interesting last name, Suzanne Sinatra. Um, and she had said, I don't know anything about marketing, but I'm starting my own business. And, and immediately I just, she has something about her that's just so magnetic. And I just felt like, wow, this woman's a force. And Whatever she's doing or is about to do, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get behind that. And that was about two years ago now. And I think it was really nice to catch up with her today and to, to hear about how far things have come and just kind of to listen to her journey of even how she got to where she is. And even before her entrepreneur journey, she has such an interesting background um, beyond her last name. She is not an <laughs> Italian uh, singer. But she's actually Canadian. She's Caribbean. She's Indian. Uh, she checks a lot of the quote unquote diversity boxes. Yep. Yep. She's all of those amazing things. And, and she's also been through so much. She shared with us today that she's in remission from cancer, from breast cancer. So that's incredible. Um, she also talks about some of the other uh, incidents and experiences that she survived as well that um, we'll hear a little bit about. And I just, I feel like what surprises me about Suzanne and inspires me about her is that despite the events that she's encountered, the challenges that she's encountered, any kind of um, any kind of negative experiences, 
she remains to be an optimist and she is so generous with her time and her resources. And I just find that to be so special about her. Yeah. And if you are curious to learn more about Suzanne's business, be sure um, to visit privatepacks.com. You can sign up for the email list if the product is something that might be right for you or someone you love. But it's really just hard to describe uh, the intensity and the nature of this conversation. You just got to hear it. So we hope you'll enjoy our chat with our friend Suzanne. Suzanne, are you related to Frank Sinatra? I'm not. But my ex-husband is. What? So I figured that since I'm coming back to New York from Dallas, I might as well keep it because it gets me great tables. <laughs> that is a really valuable asset that you got out of the divorce, right? <laughs> That's the only thing I left out of that marriage with was the last name. I got nothing else. And it's so funny because he went to Wharton. So the joke was with all the Wharton friends that Mark got to keep all the money and Suzanne kept all the friends. So I didn't get a dime from him. So what you're saying is you have a deep white uh, Italian American heritage. Is that fair, Suzanne? It's yes, by default. (laughs) I have a deep white Italian. Yeah, by way of marriage. By way of marriage. But when I grew up in Brampton, Ontario, I was born in Toronto. We moved to the suburbs five years later. We grew up in a very Italian neighborhood. Like the family that lived on our block, they had a grandmother and we had to call her Nuna. Like her grandkids would call her because that's how we all grew up. So being Italian meant nothing to me. It's just funny that I have a very Italian (laughs) last name now. And I'm the only black person that's got it. I'm pretty sure you're black? black person. You're black and you're Canadian. I'm black, I'm Indian, dot, not feather, and I'm Canadian. Yeah. My family is from the Caribbean island of Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm a first-generation Canadian. Yeah. And I have a younger brother. And everyone still lives in Canada. I'm the only one that lives in the States. You're like an immigrant. You are. I'm like a real immigrant. <laughs> You're a real immigrant. And Fresh you don't off even the sound, boat. You don't sound Canadian. You don't say, say, say A-B-O-U-T. A, A-B-E-O-T? No, A-B. A-B-O-U-T. O-U-T. Yeah. About. Yeah. How? Why is that? Why do you say about and not about? You know why? Because when I got here in 1996, And I got my full visa in 1998. I moved to the Bronx and I was like, I cannot sound Canadian here. I will get robbed so quickly because I look like an immigrant. I didn't want to sound like one. So Mm -hmm. I tried to get rid of it. When I think of ethnic, ethnocultural groups that people are like, I'm totally going to rob them. It's not Canadians. (laughs) Right. I'm going to borrow money. No, no, hang on. I'm going to borrow money politely from them and maybe not pay them back. Right. Which is robbing. That is a different form of robbing, Raman. Right. But I don't think the Bronx like really segregates. At least back in the day, they didn't. They don't segregate. So it's not like when you go backpacking, you put the Canadian patch and people don't mess with you on your backpack. Oh, I totally do. I totally do. But that doesn't work in the Bronx. Well, they don't give a shit. If you don't look like you're from there, they'll rob you. Yeah. Thankfully, I've never been robbed in the Bronx. I've been robbed in the city 
I got mugged, but that's about it. But who in the city doesn't get mugged in some way? Oh my God. Um, bring us back to, was it Ontario, Canada that you're from? Ontario, Canada. Yep. Tell us the story from your early life of growing up in Ontario. So my early life growing up in Canada, it was really confusing because my, it started off with my parents because my father, who's Indian, Hindu, his family hated my mother because she's black. Mm. So I grew up with racism from the jump. And it was very difficult because I didn't know where, where I stood. I was I'm like, I don't know if I'm black. I don't know if I'm Indian because I don't look black. I don't look Indian. I fall right in between. And then growing up, I was always bullied by white people and black people because black people actually, they gave me the hardest time because they would always say I wasn't black enough. My mom dipped me in Clorox, which is the bleach. Wow. Pre president Trump saying to inject it. But yes, that was a thing back in the day. And I just was never, I never felt like I was enough. Mm-hmm. And then my parents raised me with the belief of kids were not meant to be heard or they were not meant, kids were not meant to be seen or heard. And so I was just a very quiet child and always seen to myself, which is a complete opposite of what I am today at 46 years old. Like you will see me and yeah. you will hear me and Sharon, you know this. Well, yeah. And yeah. so that's how you're different. What part of that little girl is the same today? I have to make an effort to be seen and to be heard because I'm naturally very shy. So when I talk about, which is like private facts by startup, what we do is about sexual health, general health, sexual wellness. I have to make a conscious effort to get out of my comfort zone because I'm really a shy little girl and I'm very naive and I'm very soft, which is very different than what I portray out in the streets. Yeah, I think we've often talked about you, Suzanne, as being a, um, like, you know, you're a self-proclaimed intro, like extroverted introvert. I think that's how we've yes. discussed it because it's true upon, upon first meeting you, you are definitely <laughs> super outgoing. You're like an open book. You have so much energy, but now that, I mean, I've known you now for a couple of years and, and I see that other side of you that's more private. And it's right. It's kind of surprising. Like as I got to know you a little bit, I was like, wow, she's really, she's completely a different person in her private life than she is in her public life. Very different. A, a friend of mine who was helping me with private packs, I was really excited and giddy when I got on our Zoom call. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in remission now. And she's like, wait, you had cancer? I was like, yes. She's like, I had no idea. She's like, you never told me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of private that way. It's like, you need to tell everybody. I'm like, uh, but I feel like when you talk about the big C, it kind of brings people down. So I really don't like to talk about it, but I don't mind sharing it because I feel like my journey could help someone else. And it's a success story. You're a survivor. You're a, you are a breast cancer survivor. I take that very much. Like I love knowing that I beat cancer, that I was a survivor, but there is some trauma from that because I did it by myself. Mm. Like I didn't have anyone to go with me to chemotherapy. I didn't have anyone to go do a few surgeries with me. And it was really difficult. And I had to build private packs at the same time. So I did both things simultaneously alone that the normal person can't do by themselves alone. Mm -hmm. How I managed to do both of them alone, I still don't know how it happened. 
And I don't know how I beat cancer and I launched the company together. I, I, so the how mm. is a big question mark, but why? Why did you try to go it alone? I tried to not do cancer alone. But when I was in, what, living in New York, my parents couldn't come to here to take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't leave the United States because I had to be in chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And because I had health insurance in the States, I didn't have any Canada. I had to do my cancer treatment here. And the cancer was progressing so quickly, I couldn't get a cancer doctor in Canada quick enough. Got it. Like I had left my marketing job at Deutsche Bank on August 31st, and I had to be in chemo by September 11th. It was only a few days that I had. And then to do the startup alone, I have tried to share the company with other people, like try to find a co-founder. It just hasn't been a match yet. And I'm trying before I used to force it. And now I'm trying to just let it be is someone's passionate about our mission, which was provide genital healing tools and products to make healing sexier and safer and more discreet yet comfortable. That is something that has to organically come to me and the company. I can't force it anymore. Yeah. I mean, if I've learned one thing coming out of startups is you never, you never fill a seat because you want, you need a warm body in a seat, right? You're better off leaving the seat empty if the right person's not there. And I would assume that's the same for, for founders or co-founders. It is exactly the same. And it's the same for advisors, investors, and the co-founder, because being divorced, I know getting out of an investor relationship or getting out of a co-founder relationship is going to be harder than getting out of my marriage. So I feel like I want to make the right selection for who will join me in this amazingly fun journey. So you brought up your business and while this isn't a, a business podcast, it is interesting to hear about your kind of mission driven nature. You had cancer, you were doing it by yourself and you decided to keep this company going. Like a lot of people would have been like, I'm going to take a break from work. You know, I got to hit pause on other parts of my life. So I want to come back to the why. So first it was, why'd you go out alone? You've answered those. Why did you keep the business going? Why does this matter so much to you that you would do it while fighting cancer? So what I was doing, I had the uh, Private Pack's Instagram feed going. And I would hear from women while I was doing treatment how important it was to get a Private Pack and how they were in pain. And they were sharing me these deeply intimate stories. And I'm like, I'm a perfect stranger to these people. Why are they telling me this, this stuff? And they were the ones that inspired me to keep going. Like, I remember this one girl reached out to me. She was 16 years old. And she's like, hi, are you selling your products? And I said, no, not yet. What's going on? She's like, you know, I'm 16 years old. My boyfriend is 17. And every time he puts it in, it hurts. And I'm like, oh, my God, I think she's a virgin. Yeah, And I remember instantly what my first time like was like with a boy. So I tried to talk to her. My first thing was, okay, first, I'm not a doctor. You need to speak to a medical doctor about this. And she said that she was scared to speak to the doctor because they would tell her parents because she's still a minor. So I tried to tell her that she needs to relax 
and what to use to make it go in easier because she wasn't, I wasn't going to be that person to tell her not to have sex. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my place. I mean, I'm a CEO of a company. Right. I'm not your mama. Right. But I still have to be a responsible adult to advise this young lady. So I just kept saying like every message, every other message, wear a condom, wear a condom, <laughs> wear a condom. <laughs> Like health, because health ed class, I didn't want again. her to be pregnant. I yep. didn't want her to catch anything. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, don't use oil when you use the condom. Yeah. And I felt like in that conversation, it really set in my mind that I am the person to lead this company. And that's what really kept me going through chemotherapy because I actually had something to work towards. And it kept my mind off of like, oh, I'm dying. Yeah. Yeah. I need to start. You know, I got a chance to think about other people and not about myself. There, because when I looked at my own life, it was really depressing. There's a um, really uh, successful entrepreneur that I, I've got to meet over the years in New York. And he's had a couple of really good exits. And early in my career, when I was going over to startup, I asked him, I was trying to figure out which, which of these companies should I go to? And he was like, I, I also invest in companies and I look at two types of founders, the ones who are kind of doing it because it's just kind of fun. It's a cool thing to do. And then they're the ones who can't live in a world where that product or that service doesn't exist. And the way you we've met a couple of times and you've told me about your business and how you got there, I feel like you fall into that latter camp, which is why it wasn't just a distraction from cancer. Based on the conversation with this girl that you mentioned, it's like, if you don't do it, the thing's not going to exist and the thing has to exist. Is, is that a fair statement? Right. That is exactly me. Private packs needs to exist and I have to bring this to market for everyone else. I literally got my website up yesterday. I got my first sale yesterday. I didn't do any marketing. I didn't do anything other than the Instagram feed. And I already got my first sale. And that was a huge accomplishment. And I reached out to the customer and let her know, like, I don't have shipping yet or the taxes figured out yet, <laughs> but thank you for buying my product. You are my very first customer. And she's like, I bought your product because I'm in such horrible pain from my period that I need the hot pack on my stomach and I still have to work. And I'm like, oh my God, like when you create something that affects and hopefully improves people's lives, that gives you the energy to keep going, even when you have cancer. That's so great. Yeah, but don't, don't tell yourself short. Uh, Suzanne, this, you're not someone who just launched a website. And yes, is your first official sale. But I believe you've, you've had like pre-orders and Kickstarters and Business Insider and Forbes. You've been picked up. This is a thing, but it's now an official thing. Is that is that? Wait, it's, you're very right. Yes, I had a crowdfunding campaign. We were successful. We raised 223% on the platform. Got a, my very first article was in Forbes, which is a huge accomplishment, and Business Insider, as well as Femtech Insider, Pill Pack by Amazon. But it goes back to that two-year-old that doesn't has been taught not to be seen or be heard. So I don't talk about that stuff. Yeah, which is very different than most people, especially here in America. Like I wasn't raised with confidence. I wasn't raised with that level of showmanship, especially that you need as an entrepreneur. Mm. So that comes to me much harder than figuring out shipping and taxes. Yeah. Two questions. What did you want to be? And then what did your parents want you to be? My parents didn't have any dreams for me. I didn't have any dreams for me. 
So I didn't know I could dream. I didn't know that was a possibility. My parents were factory workers. So my mom was a riveter for McDonnell Douglas, the air, the airplane company. Yeah. Their main competitor is Boeing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're around anymore. And then my father would outfit ambulances when they would come in. He would restock them. And from them, there were no big dreams for me to have. But when I was 12 years old, I was watching Dateline with Stone Phillips. So that was like back in the day, Dateline. And at the end of every episode, they would have a shot of New York City. They still do. And it looked like a jewel. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to be there. I want to be in New York City because of Dateline. It just looks so beautiful. And if I was to say I have one love of my life, it would be New York. You're such a Sinatra. I'm such it's a in your blood. It is so in your blood. It is so in my blood. Like I'll see the city, especially when I fly. Like I pick my seats, my airplane seats from Toronto based on what side the city is going to come off. On. I do the same thing when, when I yeah. come back. Yeah, yeah. I, Left side of the plane. You guys are such right. nerds. You're such nerds. I never do that. <laughs> you know, but Sharon, Sharon's lived here her whole life. You and I. Right. Yeah, yeah. We're immigrants to here. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not a native New Yorker. But this city gives you so much energy and love and culture. Like, I don't mind standing up for this person if they're being harassed on the subway, because I don't feel like because you're Asian or you're black or I'm, you know, you're white. We're all New Yorkers at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I just love the city so much. So I didn't have a dream of what I wanted to be, but I did know I always wanted to be here. And so now you're, you're an entrepreneur. Some things that yes. you and I have talked about is some of the challenges of being a, a black female entrepreneur in particular. Share, share some of that with us. What is it like to be an entrepreneur period, but then also to be out there, you know, trying to get the attention of investors, trying to get a business off the ground and being a person of color. Being an entrepreneur is amazing. You really do get to call your own shots. Uh, For me, it's special because I'm working on something that I'm very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Like I could not be that entrepreneur that needs to think of an idea so I can make some money. That's not my level of entrepreneurship. If I wasn't doing private packs, I probably would not be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I would still be an event planner for a bank, which was very boring to me, but they pay great. (laughs) So being a black female founder is nothing short of just difficult. Now, being a black founder of a femtech slash sex tech company is even more excruciating because I get turned down for stuff because I'm a, they say that I'm a sex tech founder because of the coverage area that private packs provides therapy to, which the first product is for the vulva. So for instance, I found out that Silicon Valley Bank would not give me a bank account because they thought I was embezzling money. What? Because of the type of product that you're selling? Yes, because of the type of product. Then I was unable to secure product liability insurance because of the area that we cover. The literal area that your product literal, yeah, yeah. The vulva area. Mm-hmm. They would not give me insurance coverage. Hmm. It's just always like a hurdle. So that's just the sex tech side. Right. Now the black side. So. 
0.002% of investment funding goes to diverse founders. Of that 0, 0, 0. 0.2, whatever number, yeah. 66% of the funding that do go to Black women, they all come from Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. So I don't come from an Ivy League school. I don't have a powerful alumni behind me. I don't have a network here in the United States. So it's even harder. Because you really, it really is. I have to punch Paul and knock out Mary to pay Peter. Yeah. And it takes me, um, like I had to break into my retirement account because it wasn't enough money. So I get challenged on both sides, both the black entrepreneur side and the sex tech founder side. But it doesn't stop me. I just find ways around it to make it happen. Do you ever feel like you have to do things to fit in or to figure out how to get in front of the right people? Like, you know, do you ever feel like you, you do compromise? To get the results that you want? So I never compromised to get the results that I want. Yeah. Through the journey of cancer and private packs, I have found that I have a very strong value system. Mm-hmm. Compromising is something I'm not willing to bend. That's good. Um, I've had to learn the game really quickly. And for instance, one of the games I had to learn was I thought that if there if I reached out to a black entrepreneur that there would be some type of camaraderie that they would either not really so much even help me, but maybe advise me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That has just been like grade school. Just met with all the resistance in the world. Really? I cannot get any help. Men and women. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Men and women, black people will not help me at all. Is it because it's a uh, sex tech? What, why do you think that is? So on Instagram, you see this one side of hashtag black excellence and that we're doing so much for the community and we're all giving back. But on the real down low of it all, it is crab in the barrel. I'm going to try to get out and I'm not going to look back and help you every man for themselves. If one crab gets out, I'm not turning back to help you at all, which is so unfortunate because they preach one thing in public and one thing in private. I just want to pull on that thread a little mm-hmm. bit more. Is it informed only by your own experience or do you see that happening to other people? Do you see other black entrepreneurs being the lower crab in the barrel? This crab in the barrel, I've only seen it with me. Okay. And the other black entrepreneurs that I've reached out to, they have all exited. Right. So they're successful. Got it. And some even have a fund, but they're of no assistance to me. And then they would say to me though, oh, I'll help you or you know, send that to me. I'll take a look at it. And then they don't. So it's like, why even make the offer Hmm. to make yourself feel better? Hmm. But that has given me the ability to say to myself, okay, you know what, Suzanne? You're working on something that's really trailblazing. So sometimes you just may be ahead of the group and you have to accept it. They may not see your vision just yet. You're going to have to chug along a little bit longer by yourself before this becomes something bigger. So that sounds more to me like it's a, it could be a sex tech thing or it could be the type of product that you're making. No, it's because she's Canadian, right? man. It's because she's Canadian. Oh, <laughs> I think it's a Canadian thing. No, and her I last really... name is Sinatra. So it's like they kind of don't really think you're black. Maybe you're really a really dark. Right. Italian and then person. I show up and I really right. don't look black. <laughs> so, but I really do think it's a black thing. And that's unfortunate. So I said, I promised myself when I sell private packs, I'm going to create a fund called Underdog Ventures and give money 
to the underdog. That's the only qualification. You have to be an underdog. I'm applying. I'm applying to your fund. There you go. I'm going to come up with some business. It's all about giving back. I love the name, Underdog Ventures. Just because I didn't have it easy doesn't mean that I want another person to not have it easy. Yeah. So if you- That's why I've learned everything. If you could go- If you could go back Mm -hmm. to being that little girl in Ontario. Yeah. What advice would you give her today based on what you know now? What I would tell that little girl is you have no idea what wild ride is ahead of you. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be worth it. You're going to love your life. That's what I would tell her. And I would smile (laughs) and tell her it's going to be okay because I, from, and this is difficult to say, but it is the truth. And I always live in authenticity. I had a very difficult life in my personal relationships growing up. Like my first boyfriend beat the shit out of me. I've been raped. My first sexual intercourse was with with a cousin. So that also fed to trying my best to be lonely because I didn't want my parents to find out anything. Mm. So it even furthermore made me introverted. So to come out on the other side of everything today here at 46, it's very encouraging to know that I was able to make it. Mm -hmm. You truly are the definition of a survivor. I mean, I know, I know a lot about your story and it's cancer, it's, um, abuse, as you had mentioned, right? Yeah. It's, it's assault, it's incest. It's so many, so many things that you've had to endure and you have come out of that being open hearted and generous and, um, wanting to create better for others. And I think that's very, very inspiring. Well, thank you. I mean, I would hope, and I say this all the time. I didn't go through all of that to keep it to myself. I want to share it because if my Canadian ass can beat all the odds, anyone can. Yeah. Maybe the secret sauce is that you're Canadian. Maybe that's the secret. I think the secret sauce is that I'm Canadian. And I'm also at a place where I'm ready to embrace the power of me Mm -hmm. because I know I'm a powerful being. There's, um, to play into the Canadian jokes a little bit, but there's a truth to it. <laughs> um, my observation as an American of Canadians is there's like a, a humble strength. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's a, the national animal of Canada. I was offended when they said Wolverine, right? Even though it's an X-Men. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not that it's a moose. It's a moose. Right. Um, and right. yes, all, you know, the bull, Rocky and Bullwinkle jokes you can make, but it's true. There's like this quiet strength. Um, and you talk about being an introvert, you know, you don't, you don't fuck with a moose. <laughs> like no. I've been charged by a moose hiking in a national park. You, but you have? It, longer story, but no, the point <laughs> is like, they're cute. They're nice. They're majestic. And they'll stand your way if you stay to yours, but you don't piss them off. And there's a veracity behind it. But again, it's a quiet strength. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. If I was to be an animal, I would be a Canadian moose. Because I stand very firm with who I am today. <laughs> As opposed to a Swedish moose. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or an American like, moose. <laughs> like an American moose or a caribou. Um, don't fuck with me and I won't fuck with you. That's great. You know? But that's just me. I love me. We, and I think that's the important lesson in everything. We, lo- I, I we love you love too. 
We love you too. Oh, I love you guys. I love you. But you know, it's hard when you come from an immigrant family to find your own way when you're coming from a legacy of uh, horrible family pathology mm-hmm. that's not as of t- the 21st century. Yeah. Ooh. Like I would never raise my kids that they're not meant to be seen or heard. Like that just sounds so fucked up to me. Do you think that's a cultural thing? Like, do you identify? I do. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about like heritage and culture. I feel like that's a Caribbean way of thinking that kids were just a product of reproduction. Like they're really of no use or there to help around the house and a legacy. But I think it really is sad because all of my cousins and I are raised this way mm. and there's 20 of us mm-hmm. and that's on both sides, my mom and my dad. So to fight up, for ourselves and create a life of our own, it's just not done. Yeah. Yeah. And then standing up for ourselves, especially to our parents. Like when I had to tell my dad, dad, I make ice packs or vaginas. Oh my God. The conversation was so weird. (laughs) I was just, he's like, why would someone need that? He's like, why do you need to do that? And then Indian, you know, Tell me if I'm wrong or right. They were not about to hear me being an entrepreneur like, Suzanne, you're going to leave your investment banking job and do this? Like, what? You're not going to go back to investment banking? Yeah. It's very anti-Asian. Very Very Mm anti-Asian. Like, they ain't about it. There's, um, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, um, and I'm about to butcher the hell out of his name, so get ready. Arunachalam Muraganatham, so social entrepreneur in India. I remember reading the reports about this guy a few years ago, Indian guy in India, right? And he became obsessed with finding a cheap way to make sanitary pads for girls and women. And he was completely ostracized by his village, his society, et cetera. But similar to kind of your story, Suzanne, he was like, this has to be done. This will solve a massive problem. And because it wasn't the traditional way, there's a movie about this guy called Menstrual Man. Um, I, I've, I've seen the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's this, and I, I don't want to pick on, I'll pick on all cultures, not any one culture. Right. But there is this, you're not doing what's the tradition or the expected norm. Therefore something's wrong with you. Right. Uh, right. versus people seeing the long game of kind of what needs to be done. Right. Yeah. I, I hear your story and it's, it, it really reminds me of that. And I think I, I had heard about this guy before I met you and, there's, there's just something similar. And so when you talk to, about your parents and like, they just couldn't get it, they couldn't understand why. Um, I think about this guy. I mean, I'm thankful for Shark Tank because that has really helped bridge in my parents' mind that you can be a founder of a very small startup and blow up. Mm. It can be a very simple idea. So I'm very thankful. Now, my parents think that they're both like Mark Cuban and, you know, Mr. Wonderful, but that's like another level of craziness I have to deal with, but the fact that they accept it and the Forbes article did help. It helped a lot. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. It helped in my parents' mind because that's a legacy brand. And my parents are like, oh, she's in Forbes. You can point to something. She must be some yeah. she, she must be doing something well. Right. And funny story, when I was a kid, I don't know if you guys know the comedian Russell Peters. Yep. I know Russell Peters. He's Canadian. He's Canadian. He's Canadian. We grew up in the same town. No way. And Russell used to DJ back in the day in high school before he blew up. 
And he was so kind. He would let me come over and watch him spin and play music. That I was so nerdy <laughs> and so to myself. That I used to hang out with Russell Peters when I was a kid. That's adorable. Yeah. He was like a big brother to me. Doesn't remember me now, but yeah. My, uh, I will we'll save the story for a happy hour or an extended interview, but my wife really doesn't like Russell Peters because he, uh, there was a cake incident and I will leave it at that. <laughs> A cake incident. A cake incident. Oh, you got to tell us. No, now. no, no. No, saving no. it for happy hour. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. want to. He doesn't want to trash Russell Peters' good name. <laughs> I'm not going to throw a potential guest under the bus. Yes, I'll, I'll throw him under the bus when he comes on the show. Yeah, so he's a good guy though. Yeah, he's a good, great he's guy. A good guy. He's a great guy. Um, he's yeah, great guy. He's um, I, we have uh, as the episode you spoke about that you had listened to before we started recording. He's a really um, mm. he's been a really good friend uh, to a comedian buddy of mine. So uh, he's he's a class act. Okay. But yeah. So what do you think, Sharon? Speed round? I think so. I think Let's it's time do for it. a speed round. You ready for the speed round, Suzanne? Yes. Yes, I'm ready. Here we go. What's one thing about you no one expects? That I'm funny. No one expects you to be funny. I think when you first meet me, you don't think I'm funny. I think the second I met you, I thought you were funny. Oh yeah! Try again. Try again, Suzanne. Yeah, okay, let me try again. Go harder. Um, what's one thing us nobody would expect? I'm a marksman. Okay, that's cool. There we go. Tell us about this. I could put a I could put a cap in that ass, oh, and I'll get it. Oh my god! Wow. Yeah, because you're you're a you're Canadian military, right? Yes. Yeah. Royal Canadian Armed Forces. Former. Look retired honorably discharged you are an official you're a national ass kicker that's what that means i am yep. mm-hmm. what is a uh, a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to don't say when stella got her groove back don't say it no i'm so not gonna <laughs> say that um can it be a tv show sure, sure. yeah billions oh, i thought you were gonna say oh anna green God. gables i thought you were gonna say anna green gables uh, so not good. i've never seen anna green gables and i've never seen degrassi high like, I've never seen Drake on TV. You know, it's funny. I don't know I've, anything I've about- i watched Degrassi High. I don't remember Drake and, and Degrassi High at all, but- He was a kid in the wheelchair, I've been told. I know. I, I just don't remember that. But Billions, yeah, Billions is a great show. I love Billions. I'm with There's you. something in me that I feel like I am a budding Axel Rod in the making. Mm, I can oh see that. Oh, God. I can see yeah. that. You are definitely an axe. Yep. <laughs> yes. Now I'm just looking for my wags and I'll be fine. I'll be your wag, Suzanne. I will be your okay. wags. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your favorite mom dish? Fried chicken. Fried chicken. How does she make it? Just like Southern? No. Style? She doesn't make it with all that flour and stuff on it. She just seasons it really, really well mm-hmm. with like fresh herbs like thyme and rosemary. Mm. And just lets it sit overnight and then just puts it in some good old Crisco lard. Nice. Make that bitch fry. It's delicious. Yeah. What is your least favorite food? Anything to do with fish. I hate fish. I can't look at them. I cannot go to an aquarium. I can't eat them. I can't go to a fish market. I don't like sushi. Like you would never eat sushi? Nope. Never, ever. You wouldn't eat Captain D's or Long John Silver's because of the fried chicken thing? Nope. Okay. Nope. Really? Huh. So like, yeah, fish and chips, none of that. If, it, if it's fried, nope. battered, huh? Nope. Interesting. Why? I am petrified of fish. Is it all seafood? Like, does that extend to shrimp and No, lobster? just fish. Oh, just fish. No, okay. I like I like my shellfish. Got it. I love crab. Yeah. I love lobster. But 
man, if I see a fish on my plate, I'm out the door. Fascinating. Yeah. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview for a podcast? I admire her so much. Um, Melody Hobson. She's from, I think it's Ariel Financial from Chicago. She's married to George Lucas. Cool. Why? Because she's, I see her as a trailblazer and she's done a lot for the African-American community. Got it. And she is definitely like the first, I think she was like the first hire at, at Ariel Financial. And she's, she just knows so much about the financial markets. Okay. And you know who else I would love to speak to? Robert Smith. He's that famous investor. I was going to be like, of the cure? No, no, no. (laughs) And you know what? I'm going to add, can I add one more? Sure. But people hear from him a lot, but I do like him. So I have a picture of him by my office. Uh, Jay-Z. Oh, yeah. I would like to learn a little bit more about how he moved from the drug game to the business side of it. Like what has, well, lessons from the drug game does he still use today? And running Rock Nation. Okay, so we've got time for one last question, uh, and this is a this is a big one. I'm ready. What does being a model minority mean for you? Being a model minority to me is living a life that goes against the grain of what our immigrant parents told us to be. Living in what you want, not what your parents want. I can get behind that. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> That came off the top of the dome. <laughs> well, thank you, Suzanne, for spending time with us today. And having always fun a pleasure. with us. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, I love talking to you guys. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. If all you're doing is saying, I'm not part of the problem, I guarantee you you're part of the problem because it's going to, the systems are built to reinforce it along the way. These are things like our legal system, which at one time said only white people could be citizens, or it could be voting legacies where it's a hundred years now only that women would be able to vote, right? There are all these systems set up to create inequity. And if we're not actively working to identify them and change them, then we might say, well, I'm not that way, but we very much are. We collude. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.